And she really struggled with it. And yet she was the number one physical performer for her drill sergeant leader class. And she quite honestly felt like the Army had been less than accurate in in identifying the three event APFT as as the single measure, you know, for readiness to do, you know, high physical demand. Welcome back, Marksman Tribe. You're listening to Dr. Whitfield East, our guest today. He's an Army research physiologist responsible for developing the new Army Combat Fitness Test. It was a fantastic interview and we got a lot of information. Now, if you're new to the podcast, welcome to Everyday Marksman Radio, the podcast where we talk about tactical skills for an adventurous life. I'm your host, Matt Robertson. This is episode number six. If you want to look at today's show notes, go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash six, the number six, everydaymarksman.co forward slash six. I was looking forward to this one because as a former member of the Air Force myself, I always kind of wondered where our fitness test came from. And I got a lot of those answers here. So some of you guys for listening, I know I have some active duty folks on board. You're going to want to listen to this one, all right? Now, the other big takeaway from this, besides just how we got to the three-event test, is the entire history of how did we evolve as a military fitness culture from the 1800s to today? And more importantly, how do we finally come up with a new combat-oriented test for the Army that actually helps predict performance in the field? Which I think is is an extremely interesting and important thing to talk about. But more importantly for me, as no longer being in the military, and for a lot of you guys out there who aren't military yourselves, we're also going to talk about what kind of training program is most appropriate for you if you want to have a nice, healthy, well-balanced lifestyle that keeps you ready and prepared. By the way, if you are new to the podcast, I really would appreciate if you took a moment to go ahead and subscribe on your podcast player of choice, maybe leave me a review. And as always, if you're pressed for time, go ahead and jump to the last 15 minutes or so. We're going to get my key takeaways. I have a couple of quotes of his. I have my thoughts on the matters. It kind of helps sum things up or just reminds you of the key points. All right. With that said, let's get right to it. Our guest today is a research physiologist for U.S. Army Center for Initial Military Training at U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, and is responsible for leading a review and analysis of physical fitness training efforts for the U.S. Army. He is native of North Carolina and earned a doctorate in kinesiology from University of Georgia. He's built a career out of studying fitness and sports science in Iowa and Tennessee, and from 2000 to 2013, he served as Director of Instruction in the Department of Physical Education at United States Military Academy. In 2013, he published a historical review and analysis of Army Physical Readiness Training and Assessment with the Combat Studies Institute. It remains one of the most comprehensive overviews of historical American military fitness training to date. From 2013 to 2016, Dr. E served as Principal Investigator for Army Baseline Soldier Physical Readiness Requirements Study. The product of this study was the Army Combat Fitness Test, which will replace the current three-event Army Physical Fitness Test later this year. He currently serves as the head research physiologist for U.S. Army Center for Initial Military Training, or CIMT. And as a quick disclaimer, I also want to point out this conversation reflects his opinions and are not reflective of DOD, Army, or CIMT policy. Dr. East, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure. So it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so I kind of want to start off reading a quote from uh, that, the uh, document I mentioned earlier, the Historical Review and Analysis of Army Physical Readiness Training. So you, you open that with saying, with a quote from James Pilcher in 1892, when physical training ceased to be a national characteristic and the men of brawn were succeeded by creatures of luxury, 
the decadence of national prosperity followed. So I want to start with that and get your opinion of why you think that was a really good way to open the book. So I think there's at least two reasons uh, uh, that that was a, a good start point. Uh, number one is it was written, you know, in, in the 1800s. So it, it, it basically identifies this systemic uh, uh, problem that, that we have begun to experience. Uh, and there are several other times throughout history where we see individuals talking about the national issue with fitness uh, and and the lack thereof. And so it, it, it was a good place to, to start from that perspective. Secondly, it is a problem that has plagued modern armies for the last 200 years. And this is not a new problem. Uh, it is, uh, I, I think, perhaps moving continuing to move in, in, in a direction that's going to be problematic in the future. So I, I noticed in, the, in that writing, you mentioned, I think going into World War I, I think there was some percentage of the population that was ineligible to fight because they weren't in good enough shape. And that got worse by World War II. And it seems like I hear articles today talking about like almost 75% of the population, young males in particular, aren't, aren't fit to fight. So those numbers become a bit of a moving target. And what you'll hear most people talk about is um, single digit types of numbers, five out of 10, uh, four out of 10. So going into World War One, we were at about a, a, a five out of 10, uh, you know, medically qualified, physically qualified uh, to, to uh, engage in military service. And the interesting thing about that was uh, people have a perception of an, a more agrarian, a more industrial society, more physically fit. But there were a lot of bad things that happened to people who worked in those those kind of high threat uh, uh, farm and industry types of jobs. People lost hands and fingers and, you know, so that they weren't qualified to serve. So it, from World War One to World War Two, it was about uh, a 50 percent rate, about five out of ten. Depending on the numbers that you see today, that number is starting to creep down into the high twos. So 2.7, 2.8, 2.6 are are medically and physically qualified to serve. And based on the number of of service members that we recruit and train every year, uh, that's incredibly problematic. Right. I know from a strategic standpoint, that's if you don't have a solid base to work from. So, I mean, being a deterrence guy, I came from the nuclear world, and I know that's an issue if you don't have the right presence to say you have effective deterrence because look at our population, look at our capability. That's a, that's a warning sign to adversaries. So it was, it was clearly, it's interesting you mentioned nuclear deterrence because clearly the genesis of this in our generation has been in, in the late 50s and 60s with Eisenhower and Kennedy uh, relative uh, to uh, you know, physical fitness as a country and the development of the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sport uh, and, and the emphasis that those individuals placed on youth fitness as a precursor to national service whether it be military or voluntary service or, or, or whatever your, your mode of service. So uh, it, it was much, uh, I, I think, a much more important concept uh, as, and problem as we moved through the uh, 50s and 60s. And, and it's, it has obviously, um, in, in my mind, gone in the wrong direction for the last 25 to 50 years. So 
Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a combination of a couple things. One is, um, and, and I'm a World War II baby, so so I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Everybody played sport all the time. Uh, you either played sport in school. There was a lot of scholastic, interscholastic type of, of sport, uh, intramural types of activities. There was physical education classes in schools. Uh, a lot of that has gone away, and sport has become rather elitist and Part of that uh, pertains to this perception that we need to start tracking young people into sports at earlier and earlier ages so that they might someday be the master of that sport, uh, you know, in their in their teens and, and, and early 20s, which might garner either scholarships or monies in professional sports and those types of things. So so there's a, a, a significant Significantly fewer people are actually participating in physical activity today than there were, you know, 50 years ago. How, from your perspective, how has military fitness training evolved um, over time? So I think the important thing to consider is is the threat. Um, you know, what 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 are the threats to soldiers? And to a certain degree, that more or less drove some of the training uh, that we that that we've seen for the last you know, thousand years for, for that matter. Um, uh, initially, the threat was hand-to-hand combat types of threat. I mean, we had swords and spears and those types of things, and, and that's the way we fought. So most uh, service members will tell you that that hand-to-hand type of combat, soldier-on-soldier combat, is the most physically demanding type of combat. So we, we train soldiers to to execute that type of warfare. As we moved into uh, standoff weapons, individual um, weapons, uh, personal weapons, crew-served weapons, as we moved in that direction, we were able to kill people from a long way away. So so this physical type of, of, of um, uh, requirement was, was not as great. And interestingly, going back to the nuclear threat in the 60s and 70s, there were individuals who posited that we were really never going to have another land war, that everything was going to be a nuclear standoff type of scenario, um, which obviously has proven to be incorrect. Um, so if you go through, you know, the Spanish-American War, Civil War, World War One, individual soldiers had 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 a uniform and, and, and perhaps a, a helmet and a weapon, and that was pretty much it. Um, so mobility and strength uh, was not as, as as big a factor. You know, in 1916, 1917, when the French and the British developed the light tanks, basically mobility became a significant issue. We were no longer, you know, entrenched in, in a particular location. And we saw individuals who had to move over short to long distances to keep up with mechanized vehicles so that they could fight and and that changed the quotient of how we trained a little bit then in the in the in the 20s and the 30s interestingly to me um the the um uh, development of drugs such as sulfur and penicillin was another factor that changed the way we trained because up until that point if you look at all the training manuals that came out of 1828 up to 1919, those training manuals talked about conducting exercise to develop 
physical vigor, health and vigor. So health and vigor were incredibly important at that time. And so doing things like, you know, aerobic types of, of, of exercises or body weight types of exercises were, were uh, appropriate uh, based on what the outcome objectives were. As we started to move into World War II, we started putting more and more on soldiers uh, to the point where today most modern soldiers, as they go into a fight, are carrying somewhere between 80 to 90 pounds. That changes everything. It, it changes mobility. It changes strength requirements. And that was part of the genesis for the baseline soldier physical readiness requirement study in that soldiers have been telling us for years that we needed to be stronger. We needed to be able to uh, generate and apply power at an entirely different level based upon the type of kinetic environment and the fight that, that they were conducting today, uh, especially related to the, 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 the loads that they were carrying. Okay. So a couple of, a couple of things I want to come back before we kind of get to the current requirements, because I know that was a big topic. Um, uh, in the reading, you mentioned the, the emphasis on vigor, physical health and vigor. Uh, and I, I know you referenced something, the turn variants, and I guess that came from a Herman Kohler, I think was the kind of the guy in the U S but what is, what does that look like compared to like modern? Things? So basically starting back in the late 1600s, early 1700s, predominantly the epicenter was Sweden to a certain degree, France, Prussia. Um, there were individuals who were a combination of theologians and physicians who recognized that there were not a, a, a significant number of medical treatments that they could apply to their followers, if you will, who um, to help heal them once they became sick. And so basically what they embarked upon was a set of exercises to develop or promote health and vigor. And we see that a lot as you, as you look back through that 1700 to 1825 period, uh, the, the need to be healthy and fit uh, as, as a way of, of having a long and, and productive life. I, I find it incredibly interesting uh, it's kind of the CSI of the exercise military world, how this actually happened. So there's a young man by the name of Fokin Kleiss, who was actually born in Boston, whose father was a, a, a born in, in Switzerland and was not interested in having his son educated in the colonies. So he boarded a ship, went back to uh, Europe to have his son, Fokin Kleiss, educated. And on the way, the, fa the father died. And so Kleiss you know, they didn't have MasterCard and Visa back then, so he had a chest full of money. And so basically he said, do I want to pal around Europe with a chest full of money or do I want to go to school? So the palling around Europe with a chest full of money seemed like a, a good idea. And so he moved out and, and basically was a quasi vagabond. And he went from location to location. And along the way, he started picking up the, the idea of uh, gymnastics, Swedish gymnastics, um, and ultimately um, Prussian gymnastics. What that was is primarily body weight, but there were certain apparatuses like poles and ropes 
and ladders um, and individuals did exercises um, that promoted uh, upper body strength, uh, in particular posterior chain type of work. Um, if you think about pull-ups and climbing and 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 you know lower body core types of thing, doing pole climbs and rope climbs, uh, there were also vaulting horses that were the precursors to modern gymnastics, the pommel horse, and so it, it was. I, I think a, a low budget uh, industrial scale type of physical activity. And if you go back and look at the Turnbarine photos, images that we have, you see these mass uh, large numbers of individuals on a field doing coordinated types of exercise, which was sort of the second part of this. There was a firm belief if I'm sitting in a trench in France in 1917, and somebody says, get up and run at that machine gun, the expectation is, is that you're going to do that. So these types of, of, of mass athletic uh, movement, you know, extended rectangular formations where people were on a cadence and did things was in part uh, theoretically derived out of the idea of learning to take commands and adhere to commands and execute on command and um uh, obviously a little bit different today. Um, to wrap this story back around, Kleiss actually uh, ran out of money in Switzerland. He got he joined the Swiss Army. He had married along the way. And one day, he his men were out doing what men do out in the middle of the field. I don't, but anyway, so they're messing around. So he says, we're all going to do gymnastics. And interestingly, there was a British delegation there, and they saw him. And they actually hired him to come back to England and start military gymnastics in England, which is where he started it at Sandhurst and ultimately wrote the first training manual in 18, um, 1828, I believe. And then later on, he uh, transferred that to a guy by the name of McLaren, who carried that on. And those individuals were influencing uh, the, the the Turners who ultimately came to the United States and settled in the Midwest, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, Iowa, and um, were the forerunners to um, Herman Keeler, who eventually became the master of the sword at the United States Military Academy. So, so what's interesting about that story is you know you often hear comparisons that the Olympics are always kind of a, a representation of military skill and capability, and it makes sense. We talk talking about gymnastics now, hearing that story that. Oh, Olympic gymnastics has a lot of relationship to that style of training that happened for hundreds of years. I think that's in fact true. And I spent a good bit of time at West Point that still has a gymnastics program. And I, I talked to the coach up there quite a bit. And I, I wanted to, I mean, if you look at gymnasts, they look very muscular, very fit, very lean, very athletic. And, you know, basically the interesting thing to me was they do very little high intensity uh, low repetition types of lifting. Um, a lot of what they do is body weight, but they do a lot of overload for body weight types of exercises like rope climbs or bar work. So it is a, a methodology, a, a training methodology. I would argue today that our strength requirements are, are, are perhaps as great as they've ever been. Uh, and obviously the translation to the ability to generate and apply power so I, I think that it's important that we have the right individuals to train soldiers and the right facilities and equipment to train soldiers. 
so that we can get them to the, the level of, of fitness that we need. And I know there was like a, there was a parallel effort between Herman Kaler and then I guess Joseph Raycroft later on, who kind of started doing a different kind of fitness. <laughs> so actually truth is those two individuals are kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and if it hadn't been for Woodrow Wilson, it was just an interesting time period relative to where we were going with fitness. And Raycroft was interested in physical fitness, but what he believed is, is that the daily work of a soldier back then, and we have to remember how incredibly small the United States Army was until we started drafting into World War II, um, but the daily work of the soldier doing soldier stuff was very physically demanding. So he didn't really believe that they needed a lot more physical activity, but what they needed was, you know, motor fitness, sport type skills. And so he's kind of the father of modern uh, intramural mass athletics. And he introduced that to the army for a variety of reasons. He, he actually started it when he was the head of the physical education department at Princeton, but, but he introduced that as, uh, a method of productively using soldier time, which might have gone awry if they weren't engaged, plus team development, leadership, um, and and then that physical activity they got from playing soccer and basketball and football and softball and all those other types of mass athletics. So I want to move forward a little bit because uh, we, we started talking about the strength demand started growing. And I know there was a study, uh, the ORO did it in early 1950s, uh, project all clad, which I don't have a lot of information about other than the result of it was we need to develop better armor. And I think that was kind of the first trend sort towards more mechanized warfare where we have to add more weight onto each soldier. So it, is that kind of the progress of how things kept going? So, um, I have a personal philosophy about, about kind of where this is. Um, once we developed, you know, combat medicine to the point where death rate due to infectious and communicable diseases and injuries, either combat-related or not combat-related, went from 65 70 75% down to 25 or 30%. We had a scenario where it, it became more important to develop alternate you know, military strategies and, and, and better ways of protecting soldiers. So we see the development of body armor. We see changes in the Army combat uh, helmet. Um, and, and we see those weights going up incrementally, which, as I said earlier, significantly reduces mobility and, and, and also increases the need for lower body and core strength to prevent these overuse injuries that naturally occur when I'm carrying around 70 or 80 or 90 pounds all day long. So we, we saw us, uh, you know, coming out of Vietnam, uh, going into Grenada, uh, you know, moving on from there, we saw um, a significant change in the fitness needs of soldiers. And if you haven't read much about the, Grenada conflict. There's some incredibly uh, interesting anecdotal uh, reports of basically soldiers j jumping in or landing in Grenada 
moving a couple hundred meters and having to take everything off because they were carrying, you know, 120, 140, 150 pound load. And in that heat and humidity, they simply weren't able to function. As we kind of, because it seems like everybody recognized that the the needs of combat were always a physically demanding experience with, with sprinting and lifting and carrying and load. But I always feel like, and coming from the Air Force myself, you know, we had the very similar three event physical fitness test of running sit-ups and push-ups. Um, how did we, both the services end up in with that as a fitness test versus a more combat-oriented one to begin with? So there's some some interesting history in that. 1975 to 1985 period. And I don't know that we will ever be able to quantify what were the drivers behind the change, but there were three or four. So one of the most important was incorporating uh, women into the United States Army. So that was one of the factors, which is really interesting because if you go back and look at the Women's Army Corps PT test, it was more physically demanding than the three event APFT. So that's an interesting conundrum. Uh, the second would be the proliferation of nuclear weapons and to a certain degree, the mindset that we're just not going to fight land wars anymore. It's, it's all going to be mutually assured deterrence and, and we're going to be okay. So physical fitness isn't quite as important. I think you saw the, perhaps the Navy and the Air Force move out much more rapidly on a, a health related kind of format. The third thing would be in society in that period of time, in the you know, 1975 to 1985 time period, there was a pretty significant change away f- from the concept of... So, so in, in that period of time, there were two competing concepts, physical fitness and motor fitness. Physical fitness was generally described as the quantitative uh, aspects of movement. It was strength, endurance, pa- you know, power, those types of things. Motor fitness was more agility, coordination, balance, flexibility, those types of things. And up until that time, uh, most of the physical education in public schools and colleges talked about physical fitness and motor fitness. At that time, there was a shift away from motor fitness training and assessment to more physical fitness training and assessment. And in particular, by the mid-80s, the concept of health-related fitness. So we talked about, you know, cardio, muscular strength, muscular endurance, body composition. Uh, those were the, the uh, you know, to a certain degree, flexibility. Those were the, the foci, if you will, of the physical fitness types of uh, training and assessment. So all of that kind of came together uh, under the auspices of a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ken Cooper, who was a significant influencer, former Air Force captain, uh, was helping to develop programs for the Air Force. And if, if you, anyone knows Dr. Cooper, he is a huge aerobic person. And um, basically the idea was we would, we would, because of all of the reasons I mentioned, we're going to move away from assessments that are more equipment uh, intensive and time intensive to something that's very simple. It's more of a health-related fitness test, and it's something we can do anywhere uh, in a very short period of time. So all of those things came together to bring us into the three-event test. And the irony behind it is, if you go back and look at the history, FM 21-20, which was the Army's physical training doctrine, was 
updated and revised on about a five-year turn every year from the early 1940s. And almost every uh, revision of FM 21-20, there was a, a change in the PT test. I don't think there was ever an intent for this to go 38 years, 39 years, 40 years, and, and not have some review revision. And there were a lot of efforts to do that over the years, um, at least four that I know of. And all of those have failed to date. Um, and hopefully we've reached kind of irreversible momentum with the uh, ACFT. So uh, something you, you had mentioned before with that army, the army, the three event tests. And I saw the same thing when I was in the air force, but it seems like the army might've actually had two tests at one point, but because the test of record was the three event, that's the one everybody focused on to the detriment of the other. So there's always been, if you go back to AR 350 one, there's always a caveat in that uh, army regulation that says commanders need to determine you know, the, the readiness of their soldiers. They need to use the assessments that they think are appropriate to determine the efficacy of their physical training program uh, and their soldiers' ability to meet their mission essential tasks. It really, uh, there have been, you know, a variety of ancillary types of assessments throughout the year, but most individuals focus primarily on the three-event test for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it became institutionalized as sort of a human resource tool in terms of promotion and professional military education schools and those types of things. So the the focus on that became kind of universal. Yeah, there's a saying that I'm sure you've heard before. I use it all the time, even outside the military now, but you are what you measure. And when you put that much emphasis on something, it kind of becomes the de facto. So if you if you wrap it into the assessment model, if you Think about measures of performance, measures of effectiveness, and you're trying to evaluate individuals for whatever reason. If you look at the list of performance assessments that you evaluate, a lot of them are very subjective. Like, is this individual a good person? Are they a good leader? Do they take care of their soldiers? It becomes that the PT test became very powerful as as perhaps the only truly objective standardized assessment that was universal across all soldiers in the army so it it became very powerful in terms of standardization and objectivity so it it, it did grow disproportionate to its significance especially as we found out in in the study okay so that's actually going to get me to i guess in the late 1990s um I guess Dr. Edward Thomas found the old World War II uh, fitness test and administered it to a bunch of uh, soldiers in the late 90s. Um, and they found it pretty difficult. Do you have any kind of insight? Is that kind of the end result of losing focus? So I, I think so. I, I think so. One of the key principles of exercise is the concept of specificity, right? So if, if I focus on elements one and two and don't focus on three, four, and five, if you come back and assess those other three elements, I'm probably not going to do all that well. The interesting thing is, is if you take units that have training programs or have migrated to training programs like special forces or rangers, and you assess them across a broad spectrum of physical performance uh, requirements, they do really well. And, and the reason is they, they train across that broad spectrum. 
but we had individuals who were focused in and to a certain degree were told, you know, you're good to go. If, if, if you can do some push-ups and sit-ups and run two miles in, in a decent time, you're, you're fit to do everything we need a soldier to do. One of my most interesting stories was with a drill sergeant leader when we started the baseline study and we set up a warrior task and battle drill simulation test which everyone in the study had to do on top of the physical exercises. And we used it as the criterion measure for the, the study. And she really struggled with it. And yet she was the number one physical performer for her drill sergeant leader class. And she quite honestly felt like the army had been less than accurate in, in identifying the three event APFT as as the single measure, you know, for readiness to do, you know, high physical demand tasks. Hey guys, Matt here. I need to jump in just for a minute to let you know that the audio quality is about to change because this point in the interview, we had uh, had the internet drop out on his end and we had to switch from using voice over IP to going to over a conference phone. So that's it. Just wanted to give you that heads up. Let's get back to it. So uh, let's talk about that baseline study then, because you've mentioned a couple of times, I know that was a big part of what got to the ACFT. What were you actually looking at in that baseline? So we were given three tasks within the, the uh, HQDA XORD. It, the number was 04113. And, and those were to determine the physical demands, the, the components of fitness that were required of high physical demand, warrior task and battle drills, common soldier task. That was the first requirement. The second requirement was to determine how well the current three event APFT predicted a soldier's ability to execute those high physical demand tasks. And the third component was if, 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 if the three event APFT was not uh, predictive at the level we wanted, what other events were more predictive of a soldier's ability to execute high physical demand tasks. So then when you looked at all those numbers and you arrived to what is now the ACFT, how did each component actually relate to a soldier's task in the field? So the way we designed the study was just a classic criterion reference study. And the problem that we had was the very first thing we had to come up with was a criterion measure. So we actually developed the Warrior Task and Battle Drill Simulation Test, which was a, we started with all of the Warrior Task and Battle Drill Common Soldier tasks and distilled them down to the 11 most physically demanding. Within those 11, there was a lot of overlap, like move as a member of a team, react to direct fire, react to indirect fire. There were a lot of movement uh, components that were a part of three or four different Warrior task and battle drills. So we basically brought that down to five ultimate tasks. And it was move under load to contact, build a hasty fighting position, move over, under, around, and through obstacles on unimproved terrain, react to direct contact, and extract and evacuate a casualty. So we created this simulation course uh, that soldiers learn to execute, think of a, a kind of a, a, an obstacle course, if you will, and, and then they executed it in uh, OCPs while they practiced and learned, and then they executed it under load 
And then lastly, they executed it under load after a pre-fatigue. And the ultimate pre-fatigue we used was a 1,600-meter loaded ruck run. And so after soldiers did those physical activities characteristic of or representative of the baseline high physical demand tasks for soldiers, then we measured the physical exercises that, that correlated highest to those to performance on those vignettes. So for people in my audience who aren't familiar with the new ACFT, and I'll definitely be making a link to it because I know Army has a really nice website about it, but what are the events that you settled on? The events are conducted in order. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about rest intervals and those types of things. What we wanted to do is get the most physiologically sound data that we could get um, without taking uh, long periods of time to administer the test. So they start with a three-repetition maximum deadlift, um, Second event is the standing power throw, which interestingly um, has gained some traction. I don't know if you're tracking, but it's a part of the Battlefield Airman test now um, and uh, has has got quite a bit of attention lately. Uh, the third is a, a little bit of a variation on the push-up we used to do. Uh, we're calling it the hand-release push-up. And um, following that is the 250-meter sprint drag carry, uh, where you sprint, you pull, you carry. And then la uh, the, the leg tuck is number five, uh, which is basically uh, uh, a, a climbing drill type of exercise with some degree of, of arm flexion and then rotating the lower body up until your knees can touch your elbows. And then lastly, a two-mile run. So those are the six events in the order that they're conducted. Okay. So one question I do have on the push-ups, because I mean, I, I I actually am a fan of hand-release push-ups. I've been doing those more since I left the military, but I know uh, the Air Force, I had to do this kind of really subjective measure where it was your elbow had to break 90 degrees, but then that didn't work out for everybody's different body mechanics. So you know, the question is, why the switch to hand-release push-ups? So there's two primary reasons. Um, number one, the the hand release and in particular the arm extension variation are much is a, is a much more objective measure to grade. If I had you start out on the ground and push through the full range of motion, it's virtually impossible not to be able to grade that properly. And as you said before, you know, where I start, what, what my flexibility is, what's 90 degrees for me, you know, the size of my triceps, that all made it relatively subjective on the old push-up. The second is, is we want to increase the intensity of the measure and therefore reduce the number of repetitions. Let's just say that from the ground to full extension is 100%. If I only go to 90 degrees, mathematically, you might say, well, I'm only going through 50% of the range of motion. So by going all the way to the ground, I increase the intensity, and therefore, I do significantly fewer repetitions, which in my mind is a good thing, right? Because I have to be stronger to do either the same number of repetitions or I do fewer repetitions. And, and having people do junk miles or junk repetitions really doesn't help us in terms of assessing physical fitness. So, what we're seeing is somewhere between a 40 to 50% reduction in total number of push-ups, which I construe to be a good thing. Right. So it's just, uh, it's, you know, as, as, as weightlifters and bodybuilders would say, it's better, better intensity, better quality over number. Absolutely. I mean, it's like people who 
exercise and do standing curls and, and you see them, you know, flex at the waist and bend at the knees to try to generate momentum to, to curl the weight as opposed to having good posture and, 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 and using their upper body to actually curl the weight. So it, if you stop and think about work capacity, in other words, how much work do I do? I do at least the same amount of work, if not more work with the hand release push-up than I, I did with the old push-ups. Now, I know the ACFT is not the first in the recent attempts to kind of redo a fitness test. I believe there was one kind of the mid-2000s that was also proposed. Um, and I know ultimately Tradoc kind of said not to do it in 2011. Can you speak to what that test was about and why it never got adopted? So it's a complicated story. It involves timing and the ability to conduct a scientific inquiry in a timely manner. And what happened was we, the group that was working on that more or less ran out of time. We generated a solution before we had an opportunity to collect a significant amount of empirical data. There were also restraints on it, artificial restraints relative to equipment and time that current Army senior leaders removed when we started the baseline study. In that late 2000 time period, we were more or less under the same constraints as they were when they developed the three event APFT. No equipment, you know, bare patch of ground, you know, all, all of those things. So as individuals began to review this, as it, as it came out, the basic scientific underpinning was problematic. And then lastly, most individuals didn't believe that there was a significant increase in quality or predictability for the 2011 test. And it was put on hold. And almost immediately in 2012, they started to formulate the execution order to conduct a baseline soldier physical readiness requirement study. And just out of, out of curiosity for my own kind of knowledge here, because um, I know the Marine Corps also had kind of put together their combat-oriented test too. Do you think there was any influence there? And they kind of said, all right, maybe we can consider equipment. Um, I, I, absolutely. I, I, I think, and, and, and you bring up an interesting question that has much greater implications. I, I think eventually almost everyone would say, you really need a physical fitness test. And if you remember correctly, we originally started calling this the Army Combat Readiness Test. And several of us lobbied to call it the Army Combat Fitness Test because it is a, a physical fitness test. I think most individuals would also argue that there needs to be some type of combat readiness test, like the Marine CFT combat test or the ForceCom SRT, the soldier readiness test. I, I don't think anyone would deny that that's not an important part of this. And hopefully someday we'll see that resurface. But uh, definitely having the Marines develop the the CFT that involved equipment and and involved setup time, I think was was an important component of this. Okay. Um, and also, just one other question, one of my readers asked, as I, I mentioned, I was coming into this, was uh, I know you have the the new uh, leg tuck is kind of somewhat replaced the sit up. So why why the 
push away from sit-ups, which has been around, I think, for like 100 years in the different tests? So, so if we look at the spectrum between um, high repetition, low load endurance, you know, if you go off of NFCA standards uh, and you're looking at 12 to 15 or greater repetitions at, you know, less than, you know, 50 to 65 percent of one rep max, that those types of exercise develop a certain muscular architecture. And what what we found in the baseline study is it's not very predictive of a soldier's ability to execute high demand tasks. When we started looking in the postmortem of the baseline study, scientific predictability was a significant part of it, but also injury prevention was a significant part of it. What we know is we suffer a tremendous number of musculoskeletal injuries to the core, lower back, lower body that are costly in terms of soldier productivity, but also just just dollars. And so what we wanted was the same way with a push-up was we wanted a higher intensity assessment that would serve to a certain degree as a forcing function to increase core strength that would help prevent these overuse load carriage injuries in, that we're seeing in soldiers who are carrying these heavy loads. So actually, I know we're going to run out of time here in a minute. So I just want to give my last little bits of questions here. Since most of my audience is not, in fact, active duty military, but they're interested in you know physical fitness and skills, uh, do you have suggestions for what kind of exercises the average person should be pursuing to be successful at something like this test if they want to do it on their own? I'm a form follows function person. And so I, I believe that individuals need to focus on the core components of fitness, which for me are, you know, strength, endurance, power, anaerobic endurance, anaerobic endurance. And they then need to translate that out to body parts. So, so I need to work on lower body strength and power generation. I need to work on upper body strength and power. I need to work on core strength. I need to work on anaerobic endurance, uh, which we know as a training methodology is incredibly effective in ultimately training aerobic endurance, and then uh, work on, on, on your aerobic endurance. To a certain degree, it kind of depends on how old you are, if you will. <laughs> so as, as, as you uh, ripen into my age category, um, you um, have a tendency to focus more on things that support activities of daily living and, and keep you healthy and fit and keep, you know, body composition under control. I, I think a, a kind of a generalized program that has some resistance training, which helps us across the board, not the least of which to, you know, prevent stress reaction injuries and, 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 and uh, osteoporosis, but also continue on then into the, the aerobic and anaerobic types of exercises. And I'm, I'm very simplistic. I, I like to do some type of resistance training two to three days a week and do some type of anaerobic aerobic training two to three days a week. And it's, to me, it's, it's a fairly simple formula. Um, I, I do believe that we underestimate the benefits of recovery, um, there's a, a wonderful 
uh, article by uh, Dr. Andrews, who does a case study of Paula Radcliffe, the world record, world women's record holder for the marathon. And basically what she determined was uh, later on in her career in the year or two before she broke the, uh, the set the world's women marathon record was if I can't go out and train 100% or work 100%, that, that probably needs to be my recovery day. And I, and I need to understand my body and when I need to recover, um, which is another really difficult problem for the Army because, you know, military services are industrial-sized organizations. And it's, it's hard to allow individuals to recover on the, on the needs, on the basis of, uh, of the individual. So, but I think recovery is also incredibly important. And obviously not the least of which is, is nutrition and sleep. So if you can pay attention to, to those big four, you know, exercise, sleep, nutrition, and recovery, I think you're uh, going a, a long way to, to a healthy lifestyle. Okay. And as I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, but do you have any kind of favorite exercises that you like to prescribe for the aerobic anaerobic? So, um, again, I used to be a long time ago. Uh, I was always a blue collar runner anyway, but I used to run a lot. Um, I had a, a buddy in, in Tennessee and we were, you know, 50, 60 mile a week folks. Um, I, I believe that wasn't all that deleterious, but I, if, if I were smarter then, um, or I would perhaps, uh, Think of the uh, aerobic components uh, as being impact and non-impact. And I, I think it's important for individuals to learn that they can stress their um, cardiorespiratory system just as well on a bike or a stepper or a rower or in a, a swimming pool as they can out beating their feet on the road. So I would encourage people to seek out non-impact ways to do aerobic training. Um, I'm a, a big fan of high-intensity interval work. Um, I, I'm a fan of doing, you know, 200, 400 meter repeats, um, with a rest or a, a, a walk in between. Uh, I think that's incredibly va valuable. And then lastly, I, I think it's really important, especially as we get a little bit older and considering the loads that soldiers carry that we strengthen our lower body and core, um, you know, squats, you know, front front squats, back squats, deadlifts, all those types of, of, of exercises. So it's pretty generalized, but that's kind of where I focus. And then here's my last question that I asked to all guests on the show. But if you could tell people to stop doing something immediately, what would that be? So I am not a fan of junk miles and junk repetitions. So I'm not saying that it's inappropriate to go out and do a recovery run that's 10 miles at a nine or 10 minute mile pace or to do high numbers of repetitions of a particular exercise. But for me, professionally and personally, I, I, don't, I don't see the benefit of that. I, I in particular, when and I taught cadets at West Point. It was very common for a cadet to come in, and I would say, what workout are you doing today? Well, I'm going to go run. Well, what's your plan? 
I'm going to go run. Well, no, no. What, what, what's your training plan? I'm going to go run. <laughs> so I'm like, or I'm going to run to league eight. So, so the bottom line is I, I, I think it's important to have a plan. I think it's important for the, your exercise to, to, um, to be progressive and sequential um, and regular. And, and, and when you do that, either with your battle buddy or with, with an exercise log, um, I, I think that helps you stay focused on, on, your, on your exercise program. So I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of junk stuff. So, But other way, it's have some accountability and then have a plan that you follow and follow through with. Don't do, don't do random stuff because you'll get random results. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's, um, I'm, I'm a, we, we all know what the outcomes are for individuals who start random programs generally by themselves and, and the prognosis is not good. You know, they last a week or two or five or eight, but ultimately it burns out. So the idea of having some systematic sequential plan, uh, be a part of a group, have, have a battle buddy, keep a log. Um, I think that goes a long way to helping you understand uh, intensity and recovery and, and keep you healthy while you're exercising. Well, great. Thank you very much. Well, Dr. East, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time. really appreciate you talking to me today. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Good luck. All right, guys, let's talk some key takeaways from this episode. This was a really good interview with a lot of information. And I think there's just a lot to try and organize in my head when it comes to physical fitness in general and the new army fitness testing and everything that went into it, right? So let's go ahead and start at the beginning. How do, how do we get to here? So my first major takeaway from this is that fitness in the military is not a new problem that we're just discovering now. It seems like there's been this struggle for hundreds of years of how do you effectively train a large industrial sized military force while keeping the costs low and keeping it objective as opposed to subjective, right? So we're talking the late 1800s. It was very much a gymnastics thing where the emphasis was on well-being and feeling good because you know what? We didn't have the medical treatments that we have now. Then getting into World War I, where we saw about half the population wasn't fit to fight, it wasn't because they were necessarily out of shape, but they actually had severe medical problems that were the results of diseases that we now have vaccines for, or losing arms and limbs and severe injuries that otherwise just made them unable to serve. In contrast, that problem has now shifted today, where only 2 point something, 2.8, 2.7 people out of the population out of 10 are able to serve in the military because they're not fit enough. Depending on the numbers that you see today, that number is starting to creep down into the high twos. So 2.7, 2.8, 2.6 are, are medically and physically qualified to serve. And based on the number of, of service members that we recruit and train every year, uh, that's incredibly problematic. Now, my hope would be that this is not like a insurmountable problem, right? Because if we're not, we're not talking people losing hands and feet in the industry anymore before they get drafted. We're talking people who are just out of shape. And to be honest, out of shape is a problem that anybody can get over for the most part 
with good discipline and the right mindset. So it's something we can deal with. But one of the bigger questions is why the big decline from World War II to today? Because it's not just that we live less demanding lives, right? And one of the answers may actually be in sports. Now, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that the doctor pointed out that one of the big contributing factors to people being in better shape 50 years ago was that more people played sports recreationally. And I can say that when I was a kid, you know, I played soccer just like everybody else did. Everybody, everybody played something, even if it was going outside and playing Frisbee or tag or just having a water gun fight. Right. And I feel like I see that less and less today. And I sometimes wonder why, and granted video games are a big part of that, but the doctor pointed out that in a lot of ways, it's because we have almost professionalized youth sports that it discourages people from wanting to participate because they feel like if they're never going to get that scholarship, if they're not going to go pro, well, then their efforts are better spent somewhere else. And that's actually a very negative trend in how to train the youth and young people and high schoolers even on just being generally more active and physically fit. So let's play that clip. And sport has become rather elitist and part of that, uh, pertains to this perception that we need to start tracking young people into sports at earlier and earlier ages so that they might someday be the master of that sport, uh, you know, in their, in their teens and, and, and early 20s. Now, on the topic of how things have changed over the years, one of the interesting discussion points was the nature of the physical fitness, right? So the doctor pointed out that going into the late 1800s or 1900s, you know, we had generally combat looked the same. People had to be able to run and sprint and carry their body weight and move well, but also just be healthy. But as we got into the age of conveniences where we had washing machines and irons and things that made stuff just easier for us, people got a little more lazy, but also the medical technology changed where we had vaccines. So it wasn't about wellness anymore, but the World War II showed us that you have to be able to move quick. And it was the invention of mechanics. It was the invention of mechanized warfare that dramatically shifted things where you had to be able to keep up with vehicles and you had more armor and more equipment. And we kept putting more and more load onto the individual soldier and more weight equals less mobility and mobility is life. If you can't dive to cover and then sprint and move, you're, you're not going to be effective anymore. And then as we got into the atomic age, into the Cold War, we saw another shift because significant thinking in the military was that we were never going to fight a ground war again. There was no more need to teach somebody to how to do an obstacle course quickly or dive here or drag a buddy because that just wasn't going to be the kind of fighting we were going to do anymore. Well, history shows us that was not true. And it turns out we still need to do all those things, which is why we ended up having to do a brand new PT test that Dr. East is responsible for helping create. So let's play another clip talking about how that transition happened. Those training manuals talked about conducting exercise to develop physical vigor, health and vigor. So health and vigor were incredibly important at that time. And so doing things like, you know, aerobic types of, of, of exercises or body weight types of exercises were, were uh, appropriate uh, based on what the outcome objectives were. As we started to move into World War II, we started putting more and more on soldiers uh, to the point where today most modern soldiers, as they go into a fight, are carrying somewhere between 80 to 90 pounds. Now, another takeaway I got from this 
was the involvement of Dr. Kenneth Cooper in the revisions of all the PT testing. So coming from the Air Force myself, I know Ken Cooper came from the Air Force as a captain, as a scientist, and he is almost single-handedly responsible for what is modern aerobics. And funny story on that is that when I was at one of our professional education schools called Squadron Officer School in the Air Force, uh, we actually had to keep track of our workouts, but do it in terms of cardio points. And I'm air quoting that where we actually had a grid that I, I assume goes back to the Kenneth Cooper grid back in the 70s, where some kind of exercise done for some amount of time at some level of perceived effort, we earned exercise points. And we were required to log all of our exercise and get to certain numbers of exercise points every week. And people like me kind of looked at that and went, well, where's where's the weightlifting on this? Because that was always my preferred way to work out. And there wasn't anything. So we had to improvise or just go do things we didn't usually do, like lots more running, a lot more cycling and stuff that just was was different. And it's kind of counter to modern fitness culture with like CrossFit and such. So the takeaway from that is that because it was easy to measure and it was scientifically influential, the the aerobic style PT testing, which was really going to be three events of push-ups, sit-ups, and a run, became dominant. I mean, it was easy to do. You could do it without equipment, and you could do it on any patch of grass anywhere in the world with any NCO or officer looking over somebody's shoulder. So it was just very convenient. But convenient doesn't mean it was necessarily predictive of good performance in the field. Now, one of my favorite things that came out of this, it's kind of besides the point, but I wanted to, wanted to make a, a reference to it because it kind of validated a lot of my feelings on the matter, as well as a lot of people I know on active duty or have been on active duty. And that is the current three-event physical fitness test, as I'm air quoting on that again, is it's not really about physical fitness. It's an overall wellness test that's used as an HR management tool for figuring out who is going to be getting what opportunities, who gets to have what kind of career and that, that really isn't the point of a physical fitness test. Most individuals focus primarily on the three-event test for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it, it became institutionalized as sort of a human resource tool in terms of promotion and professional military education schools and those types of things. So... So the next thing I want to take away from this is talking about why we're getting away from the three-event PT test. Now, the Army actually tried this a few times, and Dr. East pointed out that in the early 2000s to like 2010 timeframe, we actually did develop another one. And people have asked me, you know, in running up to this interview, why those didn't stick around? Why did we abandon them? Because they actually got a lot of press, and I'll have some links in the show notes about that. And the big takeaway on that one was that we actually ran out of time. And the requirements at the time still had to be any patch of grass, and they were in the world kind of the minimal equipment requirement. But the way that we eventually shifted away was we used to require equipment. So let's let's actually be realistic about this. So the new ACFT does go back to using equipment and narrowed it down to five main movements that were the biggest reasons or the biggest like kind of grouping of things that soldiers would have to do in a combat environment from dragging a buddy to carrying things under load, lower body power, upper body power, core strength. It's kind of the main, the main stuff. And I'll have here, let's just play that quote. Move under load to contact, build a hasty fighting position, move over under around and through obstacles on unimproved terrain, react to, direct contact and extract and evacuate a casualty. So now we get to a test where we are much more directly measuring the things that 
affect somebody's job performance. And I wouldn't be surprised to see this be more across the board in all the services. I know the Marine Corps already has a kind of test like this, but I mean, this is the new PT test for record. Now, on that note, something else that came up in the interview and in the reading I did before this was the reason that the three event test kind of stuck around was because it was convenient to measure. I already said once before it was convenient because it was easy to do, but from a performance measurement standpoint, when I say performance, I don't mean physical. I mean your career performance. It was a very easy way to separate people because it was objective. You know, if I had two people in front of me and person one had a very high fitness test and they did good at their job and person two was also good at their job, but had a lower fitness test, you know, it was much easier for commanders to look at those two and clearly say, well, that guy who has a higher PT test, he clearly cares more and does better at his job, right? Now, in reality, maybe person two actually was slightly better, but as long as they were doing good enough and there wasn't a distinct difference in their job performance, PT was an easy way to separate the really high performers from the mediocre performers. And that's true in every service. Now, something else I thought was interesting when it came to the new events, which you heard the doctor talk about things like the deadlift and the standing power throw. But what I thought was interesting was the change to the push-up, right? Now, every service had a different way of measuring push-ups. So when I was in the Air Force and our fitness testing, I had to start in the up position with a flat back and I lowered myself until my elbows broke 90 degrees. Now, when you have really long arms, that range of motion is significantly different than somebody with short arms and actually got very subjective uh, when the graders were looking at you, because for me, 90 degrees, I'm almost laying on the ground, but I had buddies with short arms and massive triceps who could just vibrate up and down practically. And they would just knock out 60, 70 pushups in a minute. And like, they wouldn't break a sweat and they didn't even move more than a couple inches because they had such scrawny T-Rex arms. Right. And me with my big monkey arms, I had a long way to go up and down. So I, I didn't do as many pushups. Now in the army with the new tests, they're switching to something called the hand release push-up, which I've been doing thanks to the programs I've gotten from the Mountain Tactical Institute with Rob Shaw, where you go all the way to the ground and you pick your hands up off the floor and then you put them back down and push yourself up again. So it's 100% all the way up, all the way down. I think in the Army's version, you have to move your hands out to the side. I'm going to put a link to the microsite in the show notes so you can actually see how these movements are performed. But as the doctor pointed out, this new style of push-up actually increases the intensity and they are fully expecting to get fewer repetitions, but they are more quality repetitions. And that's the important. We don't want junk reps. We don't want junk miles. We want good quality, high intensity movement that we can objectively measure. And it's hard to get a, hard to be subjective about, did he go all the way to the ground, take your hands off the floor and then do the next rep? That's a much more objective way to measure a push-up than trying to kind of guess if their elbows went to the right degree. Now, another part of this conversation that I wanted to highlight was when I asked about coming up or not even coming up with your own, but when you want to do your own training program, whether it's you're doing it on yourself or you're relying on somebody else to provide it to you, what should that program look like if you're trying to prepare for the kinds of events that this new fitness test has. And Dr. East pointed out kind of the five major areas of fitness as far as he's concerned. There's strength, power, endurance, aerobic capacity, and anaerobic capacity. And all of those are kind of different realms and they're all important. And your training program should attack each of those. And for to be honest, most of us don't do that. Most of us will pick one or two things that we're good at and we do that a lot. 
you know, you get runners who do just a lot of aerobic conditioning. You get weightlifters who do just a ton of weightlifting if we do that strength and power. Um, but really a good balanced program, a good tactical fitness program, and I'll put a link to my tactical fitness article in the notes about this, it covers all of those things. And that's how you get a well-rounded profile that makes you successful, not only on a fitness test like this, but also just in life in general. Now, one of the last things I wanna get into here is the actual programming of your fitness system. Now, I am not a fitness expert. I'm not gonna claim that credit, so don't take this as my medical advice. You should always get an expert. Um, but here, here's the basic takeaway I wanna get from this is that there's three big items here. Number one, you need to listen to your body when it comes to recovery. You know, a lot of the research these days is showing that recovery is just as important as the stress you put on yourself, right? Uh, if you do nothing but always stress the body to the point where you're like, I'm going to get stronger, I'm going to get faster, but you keep putting stress on it, it's never actually going to improve because your body needs that time to build those improvements. You need to give, give yourself recovery time. So like the doctor said, if you don't feel like you can go 100% in your workout, then that means you should probably be resting. Now that said, when it comes to actually programming your workouts, there's two things here. Don't do junk repetitions and junk miles. Don't just do something haphazardly because you think you should be there. And I'm guilty of this myself lately as he was talking about doing dumbbell curls or bicep curls and kind of throwing your body weight to get momentum on there. I've been doing that lately. I know I shouldn't. I should be doing strict form because that's how you target the right muscles. So don't do junk miles for the sake of doing it. Actually focus Build that mind-muscle that mind -muscle connection and actually focus on the muscles or activities you're trying to do and do them correctly. And on that note, still, you need to have a plan. The example the doctor gave was when he talked to a student at West Point and he said, hey, what's your workout going to be today? And the guy said, oh, I'm going for a run. So let's play that clip. When I taught cadets at West Point, it was very common for a cadet to come in and I would say, what workout are you doing today? Well, I'm going to go run. Well, what's your plan? I'm going to go run. Well, no, no. What, what, what's your training plan? Well, I'm going to go run. <laughs> so I'm like, or I'm going to run to league eight. So, so the bottom line is I, I, I think it's important to have a plan. So a while ago, when I wrote an article on tactical fitness, I talked to Rob Shaw at the Mountain Tactical Institute, who I mentioned earlier here. I'll throw a link in the show notes. And I asked him, what is something that he wishes people would stop doing? And his answer was that people need to have an actual plan put together by somebody who knows what they're doing and what it means to program fitness. If you do random exercises out of a hat and you don't track progress over time and stick to it, you're gonna get random or even poor results because you're not actually doing your body any favors. Right? So it's worth taking the time to talk to an expert and have them put together an effective training plan that helps you get stronger and faster and more capable without injuring yourself. And I also know that one very well too because I have injured myself pretty badly by not taking rest when I know I should have. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up today's episode. Uh, first off, I want to say thanks for listening. This was a really good interview. I really enjoyed taking the time to research this and get into it. Uh, if you liked it, let me know. I did a lot more homework on this one, so I feel like I, I went into it knowing more information. I want to know how that came across to you guys. So don't forget to come by the website. You can comment on this actual post. Look at the detailed show notes at everydaymarksman.co forward slash six. Number six, that's everydaymarksman.co forward slash six. Come on by, let me know. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the website. 
course, I do appreciate if you subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Leave me a review, four or five stars, one star if you hate me. That's cool. I appreciate the feedback, but I definitely would like you guys to come by the website, participate with the community, and yeah. All right, guys. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, and I will catch you guys next time.